according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew 26, where we will spend the bulk of our time today. This episode has parallels in Mark, Luke, and John, although the John parallel is uh, pretty short. It's just a single verse. But that single verse we have actually gives us a tremendous amount of context. And so we actually begin our study with that context and uh, establish the geography and the uh, setting for the, uh, for the episode. Let's see if the projector decides it wants to work or not. My mouse decided it wanted to stop working today. so That's all right. There we are. The Grief of Gethsemane, episode 24. In the last, uh, remember, we're using a harmony of the Gospels that's broken down into segments. And uh, we're in the segment uh, that's called the Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. And in that segment, um, which basically started with uh, the uh, events of Palm Monday and the uh, triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem, and we've gone through now the entire Passion Week. We're on the very night in which he's betrayed. And we are now arriving at the uh, garden in which he's betrayed, the place of his arrest. So episode 24 is called The Grief of Gethsemane. Your scriptures for this include Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. You know, there's only a handful of episodes that are contained in all four Gospels, if you think about it. Uh, As we've gone through now in this Harmony study, uh, we've generally been either in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or we've been in John, since so much of John is independent of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but the episodes uh, like the feeding of the 5,000 or uh, the, cru- the crucifixion, the grief of Gethsemane, there's just a handful of things that are contained by all four. And you can spot those pretty easily as you scan down the sheet there on your, uh, on your Harmony handouts. All right, so here's where we are. Matthew 26. Like I say, is going to be the bulk of what we're going to deal with here today. Before we do, though, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, asking the Father to sanctify our thinking, to set aside distractions, and to bless us with his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come humbly before the throne of grace this morning, once again, as the objects of your grace, undeserving of your grace, but thankful, Father that we have in grace the privilege to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved, to be blessed, Father, by the living and abiding Word of God. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon our study today. Open the eyes of our understanding. Provide for us the ears to hear and the heart to understand. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The uh, upper room discourse is complete what we call the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh, Really, the message ends at the end of 16 because then he offers up a prayer in chapter 17. And he offers up that prayer as the finale to his upper room discourse, what I call the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. Then at the end of John 17, first part of John 18, actually John 18, 1, he then crosses the, the Kidron Ravine, the Kidron Valley, and uh, enters into the uh, garden there, this place called Gethsemane. 
And so what I like to do with any of these outlines, I like to take point one and fix the setting, the time, the place, the geography, the, the context for the events that we follow. And in this case, establishing the setting gets kind of wordy. <laughs> establishing the setting requires you to basically compile Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into a very large um, statement. All right? So this is what we give you here under point one. Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron. These would be the 11, all right? Because Judas is elsewhere fetching the soldiers. He'll be there uh, after a bit. But Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, John 18, 1, to the Mount of Olives. This is the geography that's listed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To a place called Gethsemane. Not mentioned by Luke or John, but it is mentioned by Matthew and Mark. Where there was a garden. Mentioned by John only. Okay, John 18, 1. So Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley. And depending on how you translate that, that term, it's either the brook, the valley, the ravine, the torrent. Um, basically, it's a wadi, like there are so many in the Middle East. It's, it's a valley until there's, river, until there's water running through it in the winter months. And then uh, it's usually dry most of the year. But when it's wet, it's very wet. And uh, the water runs very rapidly. That's what makes them so dangerous. Also, I believe it's why Jesus says, pray that your flight might not be in the winter. All right, because um, that's the season when this when this valley is full, when the torrent is raging and it's going to make their escape out of Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives or through the Mount of Olives. Their escape is going to be eastward when Christ comes and he descends on the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits north and south and the valley of escape is formed. Well, it is interesting when he says, pray that your escape, your flight might not be uh, in the winter or on the Sabbath or those who are nursing babies and things of that nature. So this is our context under point one. Um, they crossed the Kidron Valley and to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane where there was a garden. And uh, chances are, and by the way, archaeology still has not positively identified the place. There are competing gardens that the tourists are taken to, Doug. There are competing gardens that the tourists are taken to and they're shown, you know, this is the place. And they've got these real nice planted olive trees in, a, in an olive tree orchard. Uh, but none of the locations has any history back prior to the 4th century. And uh, we have no absolute certainty. And it's not really important related to uh, where exactly this took place. Um, we do know, though, that every night of this week, Jesus has been in Jerusalem during the day, teaching in the temple and so forth. And then he has left each night to go out to the Mount of Olives, specifically around to the uh, location of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. Uh, that's on the kind of the southeast corner of the Mount of Olives. And so that has been his pattern uh, each morning going back into Jerusalem, each night going out. Uh, this night, though, he breaks the pattern. He, he's not going to make it all the way to Lazarus's house. Uh, he's going to get arrested here in this garden. And this is what we see happening here. Now, subpoints under this we dealt with a week ago. Uh, Subpoint A, Jesus often met his disciples here. Uh, we're going to learn this uh, when we see the arrest uh, take place, when Judas brings the, uh, the soldiers. Jesus often met his disciples here. Uh, we're told that in John 18:2, Luke tells us that it was his custom. It was his custom. Luke 22:39, and uh, we like customs, we like practices, we like traditions. Uh, this is, I think, in part human nature. We we get accustomed to what we're accustomed to, and we just keep doing it. Okay, which is a good thing in positive <laughs> traits. It's a bad thing in terms of sin patterns and, and addictions and lusts, right? Uh, 
Uh, I think part of the way that God created us is both a blessing and a, and a curse that we have to guard against. Um, church practices, for example, and church customs and things that we, we, we do here. And that can be a snare as well. We get into a rut. Well, this is what we've always done. We've always done it this way. We've never done it like that before. And so what happens then? Believers get it in their mind that that would be wrong if they did something different. Or they'd be, you know, they would... Uh, be out of the will of God or what have you. Okay, so we want to be very cautious on those things. I could really teach a whole doctrine on customs and traditions. Um, let me just say this, though. Uh, we, we do have to be aware that if we're living in difficult times, then it is a fundamental practice, and this goes to my law enforcement background, all right? Um, if, you're, if you're providing physical security for a person on a bodyguard detail or things of that nature, which I did a lot of in the Army, you want to avoid these these common practices. <laughs> you want to not be predictable. Uh, if there's a place you always go to, always, every night, same time, same place, quit doing that. Change it up. Find a new routine. Go to a different place. Change it up. Do a different time, a different place, a different route to get there. Okay? And, uh, and so forth. Just standard physical security procedures and precautions that are taken in, uh, in such realms. And uh, now... Um, not saying Jesus is to be faulted for this night. He he knew where he he went, where he knew he was going to be arrested, and he intended to be arrested, and he intended to be obedient to the Father. And this is what we're going to see as this episode unfolds. He's going to finish the work he has to do in this garden, and then he's going to say, "All right, here comes my arrest, and here it comes." All right. So set point A. Jesus often met his disciples here. And this was his custom. Gethsemane means wine press, and this is what we taught last week. And if you missed it. Oh, I encourage you, get to the website, download this MP3, and listen to it again and again and again. Gethsemane means wine press. And I find that to be significant. Jesus must submit to this crushing. He is the grape getting pressed on this night. <laughs> All right? And he has to submit to this crushing. There is another wine press that's coming up in Second Advent. All right? Gethsemane means wine press. Jesus must submit to this crushing before he can tread his own wine press. And so let's pick up with this. We read Isaiah. We read Hebrews. We'll come back to this. In fact, I'll reread them this morning. Uh, but before we do, let's look at Isaiah 63. Let's look at Revelation 19. Let's look to what's coming up. And then let's remind ourselves why it is necessary for Jesus to endure what he endures in this garden. All right. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. Let's start with that. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Jesus must, again, the point is this. Jesus must submit to this crushing before he can tread his own winepress. Isaiah 63. There are glorious days coming up. Things that are not yet fulfilled in First Advent. So who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his, appear, in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Okay, and so right off the bat, we, we identify here, we've got this uh, triumphal appearance. We've got this mighty conqueror, something that is not what we observe in First Advent, where we have... Uh, born in a manger, we have in humility, we have submitting to discipline and so forth. 
Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? The answer comes in verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone. And uh, from the peoples there was no man with me. Remarkable. He's declaring his own unique qualifications. His own unique ability. Who, who could do this with him? Who's qualified to do this with him? Uh, we'll, we'll, when we get back to Gethsemane again, you're going to notice the disciples. He, there's three of them he wants to pray and they keep falling asleep. <laughs> and there's work that only he can do alone no matter how much he wants them to be supporting him, and if nothing else, just praying with him. Okay. So I've trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Now this is not first advent here. All this is second advent. Understand this. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. But you understand the vengeance cannot take place until he accomplishes what needs to be accomplished on the cross. Remember, he comes the first time without judgment. He comes the first time to save. In first advent, he comes to save, not to condemn, not to judge the world, but to save the world. But when he comes the second time, look out. <laughs> okay. So the year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I looked, and there was no one to help. What is this looking around? Yahweh is looking around. Okay? Think of this now in the garden. Jesus is looking around, and He's saying, Is there any way possible? Father, is it at all possible? Can this cup pass from me? If it, and then he realizes, no, I'm the only one. There is no other God-man mediator between God and man. There is no other perfect substitute. There is no other equipped to accomplish the work of redemption. And he finally confesses. He says, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to pass, then thy will be done. So I looked. There was no one to help. I was astonished. And there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. It's a powerful passage. It's one I've used in years past. Maybe you want to use it. Um, if you encounter somebody that's trying to earn their own way to heaven. right? They're doing the works routine. They're trying to get religious. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And, and deserve their own eternal life. Say, well, if you think you've got a, a mighty right arm to save yourself, come take a look at this. Understand there's a substitute who took your place because you don't qualify. And then finally, verse 6, I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. All right, so as we look at Isaiah 63, and as we see these verses 1 through 6, we see the bulk of this is second advent looking forward, right? And yet we have elements within this, blended through elements within this that are obviously first advent, that seem to be first advent, okay? And we, have, we seem to have both in the same passage, okay? We're fine with that. <laughs> it's very common, actually. What do we do now in the, in the New Testament? What do we do now in, as, as church-age believer priests? We 
rightly divide the word of truth. And we do so on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis. We, we look at the elements that have their fulfillment in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ in His first advent. And then we look at the things that have not yet taken place. And we understand that they, are, they have been deferred, that they are now reserved, that they are now suspended until He comes back at second advent. He comes back at Armageddon. Okay? It's a fruitful, fruitful exercise and one that that uh, is good to have. One that we've done in the past, uh, going back to chapter 61, when you observe another passage that has Isaiah 61, that has first advent and second advent blended together and how Jesus Christ taught that in Luke chapter 4 when He, when he uh, taught it the way that He did there and rolled up the scroll and uh, handed it back to the attendant. If you have any questions on that, come talk to me after class. All right. So there's Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Jesus has a future wine tress that he's going to trod, that he's going to step. You understand what happens here is that the grapes are all gathered, they're put into this vat, and then the people stomp on it. Okay, And that, that turns the, the grapes into juice, and you mash it down, and they, they, they trample it. Okay, There was even a pretty funny... Uh, was that... Uh, Lucille Ball, right? In the, you know what I'm talking about? There was an episode where she was doing that in the, yeah, from from 50 years ago, probably. I should find a YouTube clip on that and put it on the screen for you. All right, so let's leave Isaiah and look at Revelation, Revelation 19:15. We understand uh, Jesus didn't do this in first advent. But he will do this at second advent. <coughs> Revelation 19.15 So unless you're a preterist or unless uh, you somehow think that uh, Revelation was completed <coughs> in 70 A.D., um, then you, uh, like me, are still looking forward to this in its fulfillment. I saw heaven opened in verse 11, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. All right. The first white horse rider was, of the four horsemen was just a phony. He was a fraud. He was, a, he was um, you know, Antichrist in, in, a, in a tragic imitation. Here's the real white horse rider, our Savior. And uh, he's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. The intimate personal name between the Father and the Son. We ourselves will have such a name. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Again, why are your garments stained red? He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. We're the saints clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Made pure. Purified. We're the... We're actually at this point, we're the only resurrected and redeemed segment of humanity that has been that has gone before our bema seat. Old Testament saints have not yet been resurrected, uh, not yet to stand until Revelation 20, until Christ and us uh, sit at the, at that tribunal. So uh, this can't be uh, Moses and David and Daniel or any of the Old Testament saints. They're not yet resurrected, glorified, and um, rewarded, but we are. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
that's why I've been a little bit nervous and I take horse riding lessons at Camp Penile. I, I don't want to get embarrassed or fall off at Armageddon when the whole thing's taking place here. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. All right? So he's got a wine press to tread. Finally, then, verse 16 on his robe and on his thigh, he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, looking forward to that. But in order to be qualified for that, <clears throat> the cross has to precede the crown. Okay? You're not going to have the reigning without the suffering, you're not going to have the, the victory without the testing. And so, let's go ahead and back up to Isaiah 53. Understand what's happening here in the garden and on the cross the next day. And let's understand what happens as he cries out in prayer to the one able to save him. That's Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. But for now, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The uh, the key verses are 10 and 11. But understand the, the, the entire context here and even um, backing up into chapter 52, talking about the coming of this, of this servant. Uh, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. So when he comes, he's not coming to conquer. He's not coming in majesty. He's not coming... He's coming in humility. He's coming up as a tender shoot. He grows up. Uh, he has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It wasn't his dynamic charisma, or it wasn't his majestic bearing. It wasn't his physical appearance that that uh, commanded allegiance. He'd probably be a pretty pathetic politician today in uh, in certain things. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Hebrew idiom here is interesting. If you're a man of something, uh, then it defines you in your totality. It defines you in your existence. It defines you as, a, as the epitome description of who you are, what you are, what, what you're made up of. So a man of sorrows, that's his essence, his nature, his, his total description. You know, Superman's the man of steel. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Okay? Which means that that is what defines him. Acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. Despised and we did not esteem him. And you would think, <laughs> since he's taking our place, well, this is what happens. Verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now pay attention to the activities here. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now this is Hebrew poetry and these are in parallel. These are in tandem as you work your way through the poetry. But what you've got to decide is, are these... Is this, is this um, parallelism of, of a repetitive nature where it's defining the same thing? In other words, is the piercing the same thing as the crushing? 
is the, is, are we looking at the same thing or are we looking at different but related things? He was pierced through for our transgressions. I get that. That's the cross. That's undeniable. It's actually kind of miraculous because at the time this was written, crucifixion was not yet in practice. Okay? Or at the time David wrote Psalm 22, crucifixion was not yet in practice. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. All right. I was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Is that something different? Is that something that happened prior to the cross? Okay. So are these two activities that are connected, that are related, are they the same or are they different? And I think as we work our way through, we're going to see actually that they were different and we define that by the context. We define that by how it's unfolded in subsequent verses. Either one would be a legitimate expression of Hebrew poetry. But um, <clears throat> I think we find this here when we notice it down in verse 10. Why was he crushed? What was the purpose in crushing him? All right. So um, I think we're familiar with the rest of this here in 6 through 9. I, I read this a lot in communion services and so forth. Um, but verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. And here's one of the passages where Yahweh is obviously the father. You cannot escape the fact that Yahweh is the father because it's the servant here, the tender shoot, the servant, that's obviously Jesus Christ, God the Son. So God the Father, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. As a guilt offering. So this is a part of the process. This is a part of what leads up to the cross. The crushing and the putting to grief is the test. Are you willing to accept this? Are you willing to understand this? And if so, the Father will be pleased to accept the sacrifice. So to crush him, put him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the good pleasure of God the Father will prosper in his, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. And interestingly enough, he will see his offspring. The son will see the son's offspring. Uh, this deals, of course, with the post-millennium. This deals with the fullness of time, the new heavens and new earth, the thousand generations of the, of the uh, new heavens and new earth in the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's where Jesus Christ takes on the father role, the everlasting father. All right. Then verse 11 so, you see, there's a future. There's a future and there is a hope, but it comes not instead of suffering. It comes because of suffering. It comes because He is willing to render Himself the guilt offering. He is volitionally willing to be the crushed one. As a result of the anguish of His soul. Until the crushing takes place, until the soul experiences this anguish. It's the anguish he tells his disciples about every time he wakes them up. <laughs> okay? He's busy praying. He prays three times. He wakes up his disciples three times. And he tells them, I'm being crushed. He says, my soul is grieving to the point of death. And he tells them, pray you do not enter in temptation. 
The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I'm going to detail that for you here shortly as we get into Gethsemane itself. Right now we're just getting background. Why was Gethsemane necessary? Why did they leave the upper room? I mean, they could have just hung out there until the soldiers arrived. I suspect that that's where Judas took the, the soldiers, first of all, was to that upper room. And, uh, and, and because they were gone and they'd walked through you know, Jerusalem and crossed the ravine and got to the garden, that gave Jesus time to have this prayer time to accept the Father's uh, uh, crushing, to be the crushed one and fulfill Isaiah 53. And uh, so Judas takes the soldiers there. They're not here. Well, I know where they went. Before he goes to bed, they go to this garden. They have a prayer time. Let's, let's go catch them there. Okay. And then possibly that's when uh, Mark himself started tagging along. We don't, we don't know how Mark, uh, under what circumstances, Mark ends up naked here in this garden. We're going to talk about that too as we wrap up the last of the episodes here. Now, back to back to this. As a result, you still with me in Isaiah 53? All right. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. It's vital that we study and we orient to the doctrine of propitiation, how it is that God the Father is satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Was he satisfied based on what he had done or satisfied as the Father? Or was the Father satisfied based on what the Son had done? This passage tells us it was what the Son had done and the reasons why. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Jesus Christ, when the work is done, when the veil is, is rent in two, when the earth quakes, Jesus cries out to Telestai. It is finished. And he does so in full knowledge, full awareness that God the Father is satisfied. He knows his father is satisfied. He has taken up his spiritual life again. He shouts to Telestai as a spiritually living being. All right. When he says, into thy hand I commit my spirit, that's a living human spirit. You're not giving the father a dead human spirit. Okay. His spiritual death was the time of darkness. When it was finished, he had authority and he took up his life once again. Now, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. This is what allows God's satisfaction. It allows propitiation as a, as a doctrine. It allows God to be um, content or satisfied or basically his righteous and justice standards are now eternally, infinitely propitiated. And he will never once compromise justice or righteousness in any act of love or any act of grace or any act of forgiveness towards you and I. Because the righteous demands have been satisfied. They were satisfied when he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, when he crushed Jesus Christ and taught him this, you see, the anguish of his soul. It was infinite. It was infinite. And a finite number of creatures committing a finite number of sins uh, can't possibly 
reach the level of satisfaction that God the Father experienced with the infinite satisfaction He has in uh, crushing His Son here as a result of the anguish of His soul. Now notice, that's on the Father's side. What's on the Son's side? By His knowledge. By His knowledge. And you recognize why this is necessary. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Okay? By his knowledge, the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ, my servant, Jesus Christ, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Okay? So therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, he'll divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So what qualifies Jesus Christ to go to the cross? He's sinless. He's perfect. And this knowledge. He knows. He has full and complete knowledge to be the substitute. Full and complete knowledge to accept the wrath and judgment that's going to hit him on Good Friday. It's as a result of the anguish of his soul. It's by his knowledge. Again, by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. God the Father is not going to put God the Son on the cross until God the Son has this full knowledge. Until he fully knows. Because if, if, if he doesn't fully know, if he's, if he's kept unaware, if he's kept ignorant, then what does Philemon 14 say? <laughs> then your goodness will be in effect by compulsion. And that doesn't please God the Father. I want you to be informed. I want you to have full knowledge. Okay? It's by his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Um, you want to know about that? Okay, let's, let's hit Philemon on our way to Hebrews 5. Since uh, the best way to find Philemon is to aim for Hebrews and back up a book. <coughs> we have a City of Austin truck out there. They're changing our meter today. <coughs> they promised we would have no interruption of service. And I thought, you know, interruption of service can mean a couple of different things. Electrical service or church service? I guess we'll find out. Alright, so on your way to Hebrews, you back up a book and you look at Philemon. And in talking about uh, returning the runaway slave to uh, Onesimus here, to Philemon, he says, I really wanted to keep him with me. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I begot in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful. And that's a play on words because the name Onesimus means useful. But he was formerly useless because he was a runaway slave. But now he's useful, both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, because he's very useful. So that on your behalf, 
he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. You know, Philemon, I realize you've got things going on there in Colossae. You've got business. You've got a home. You've got a church in your home. You can't exactly travel here to Rome and, and serve me. But, you know, one thing you could do is you could dispatch your slave to travel here and, and serve me. And that would be a, a grace gift on your part. Okay. Say, you know, rather than keeping your slave there to do your stuff, send your slave here to do my stuff. And uh, that would be, you know, a way that you could serve me in grace giving. But then he says, without your consent, I did not want to do anything. So that goodness or your goodness would not be, notice now, in effect. In effect. It may not be actual compulsion. He wouldn't be forcing volitional obedience. But in effect, it's compulsion. Because it was completely out of his uh, awareness, uh, out of his knowledge, out of his obedience. God wants a cheerful giver. He wants somebody that's giving that knows why they're giving and wants to give. Likewise here. So that your goodness will not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Goodness, any fruit that we bear, anything we do for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the good pleasure of God the Father, we do so in full knowledge. In full awareness. In full volitional um, participation. Otherwise, there's no value to it. We're not to give grudgingly or under compulsion. What's that? God loves a cheerful giver. And pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Voluntarily, according to the will of God. It's amazing how uh, that gets overlooked. So this is what the Father's doing here. He wants Jesus Christ to be on the cross voluntarily according to the will of God in full knowledge of why He's there, of the, the infinite depths that He has to pay for. Okay? Because until He has that knowledge, the righteous one can't justify the many. It's by, his, by this knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Until he has that knowledge, he's not qualified. On our way to Hebrews. All right, on the way to Hebrews. Hebrews 5. The prayer life of our Savior, verses 7 through 10. And far better than my preaching about the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> okay. Let's get God-breathed and inspired scripture that gives us commentary on our Savior's prayer life. The book of Hebrews describes our Savior's prayer life. And so we find out that in the days of His flesh. Alright. Hebrews chapter 5. This is a wonderful... I'm really eager for uh, Glenn to get here to chapter 5. He's still in chapter 3 on Sunday nights. But um, the chapter begins here. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's just how it works with earthly priests, appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Remember, our Savior was appointed. Jesus was the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he was appointed. And he was faithful to the one who appointed him. Now, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently, that is a human priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Raise your hand, that's me. Uh, <laughs> okay. He can deal gently with the, sin, with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Okay. From Aaron to Eleazar to every high priest there ever was, they know what ignorant, misguided fools we are. Because, uh, because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So he identifies with us because he's one of us. And then before he can offer the sacrifices for us, he has to actually consecrate himself, offer sacrifices for himself. So these earthly priests have preparatory steps they have to engage in so that they'll be qualified to do the work that they've got to do for the people. And their preparatory work is to offer the sacrifices for themselves that they need because they too are sinners. Now our Savior has a different kind of preparatory work. He doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he's not a sinner. But he has a preparatory work he's got to do. And that's what Gethsemane is for, what Gethsemane is about. It's the crushing as the Father gives him the knowledge of the guilt of the wrath that he's going to accept the next day. The knowledge that nobody else is able to do this. The knowledge that he doesn't want to. But, no, but if he doesn't, no one else can. And no one else will. So it's the preparatory work of the high priest. It also says no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So, also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. He didn't just boastfully say, I will, I will, I will, I will, like uh, Satan did. He didn't glorify himself. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so God the Son, in priestly function, is going to achieve our salvation. And to do this, we see his prayer life, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Able to save him from death. Father, with you, all things are possible. If possible, take this cup from me. Now he tells the one for whom all things are possible, if possible. <laughs> he then tells the one to whom all things are possible, it's not possible. It's not possible for this cup to pass by me. We've got that coming up too. It's going to be a fun class. All right. So he's praying to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And what was the answer? The answer was not saving him from death. The answer was death. The answer was death. You understand that? Many times we pray for something and that's not the answer. He prays to the one able to save him from death. But death was the answer. The spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The physical death, the burial, rising again in three days. He was heard because of his piety. He was heard. The father was satisfied. The son was acknowledging that he was learning what he had to learn. 
He was embracing the knowledge of what the Father was teaching him in this. See, if, 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 if we succeed in avoiding every problem in life, then what we also succeed in is avoiding the knowledge that's gained through the suffering circumstances. Think about the things that you would never learn except for the testing He puts you through. And you learn about God's mercy. And you learn about God's comfort. And you learn about God's faithfulness. And you learn about how power is perfected in weakness. Well, if you never go through the weakness, you never learn how power is perfected in weakness. It just stays a, an academic study. It just stays a, a real nice Bible verse. Yeah, put that on my refrigerator. But for you to learn it experientially, for you to learn it in the reality of your soul, you've got to go through it. It's the only way to learn it. So he learned obedience, though he was a son. (laughs) That didn't excuse him. He could claim no privilege as an exemption. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He gained the knowledge of Isaiah 53.10. He learned obedience. Now, he knew obedience before. But he learned obedience in the infinite degree. The absolute obedience needed for the infinite sacrifice on the cross. Only until he was taught that was he qualified to be our substitute. You know, the the full awareness. I mentioned this last week also. The sheep, we identify with the sheep. The sheep never identifies with us. Right? Right? When an Old Testament guy would show up with a sheep and put his hand on the head and slit his throat, okay, every sinner would identify with a sheep. But what does the sheep know? I mean, the sheep doesn't know that there's a, I mean, there's a hand on his head. The sheep doesn't know that he's a substitute. The sheep doesn't know he's about to die as a sin offering, a guilt offering, a trespass offering. The sheep is stupid. The sheep's just a sheep, okay? We identify with Christ. But the reason we're saved is because Christ identified with us. All right? And that full identification included the human walk, the walk of mortality, the walk of weakness, the walk of, su- of suffering, the walk of testing, testing all things even as we are, yet without sin. And it included the full awareness of our guilt, the full totality of God's wrath to satisfy justice. And until Jesus Christ knew how much wrath was going to satisfy the Father's justice. The Father wasn't going to allow him to be the substitute. So he learned obedience. He gained the Isaiah 53.10 knowledge. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He was prepared for the cross by being crushed in the garden. And having been made perfect, having been made perfect, Don't think that that was in heaven. That was in Gethsemane. Having been made perfect. Having been prepared to be the righteous one whose sacrifice would satisfy God the Father, he he went to the cross and became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. By the way, that's a good verse to add to. We had other verses we used for uh, salvation as an act of obedience. Right? We talked in John, the Gospel of John, we talked about as many as received him. We talked about those who believe, those who disobey. Okay? This is another powerful verse that shows that salvation is an act of obedience. 
when you accept the gospel, when you accept the free gift, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're obeying God because God desires for none to perish but for all to come to repentance. So he became to all those who obey him, in other words, believing the gospel, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All right. Is this easy? Is this a simple doctrine? Is this milk for the babe? It says, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. <laughs> okay? We're getting into realms of doctrine that you just got to be in fellowship, trust the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, take you through it. I thought we did a good job with it last week. Wanted to restress it again this week. That Jesus Christ could not go to the cross until he had the full knowledge that Isaiah 53.10 was talking about. Okay? And that's what Gethsemane is doing. That's what Gethsemane is doing. One last thing I'll say here. I don't know how to preach it. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what I think about it. But I observe it for what it is. Adam's failure and Jesus' victory both took place in a garden. Adam's failure and Jesus' victory both took place in a garden. <laughs> There's got to be some meat there. But I think I'm just going to keep chewing on it for a while. <laughs> I'm going to keep praying about it, meditating on it. Adam's failure and Jesus' victory both took place in the garden. I think the we, we, we looked at this in John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. I really believe the impact of that is to contrast Jesus with Adam. Adam was placed in the garden and given vine dressing responsibilities. He was a type of God the Father in that capacity. But we want to understand who the real vine dresser is, who the real vine is, and what our role is to bear spiritual fruit. We talked about that when we were in the upper room discourse in John 15. All right, so the last thing we'll say about this garden. Now, point two. Eight disciples. Uh, let's get back to Matthew, Matthew 26. And we'll look at verses 36, 38, and 39. We've got here, there, and in the garden that we've got to look at. In, in uh, 36, 38, and 39. Here, there, and over there. Eight disciples were left to sit here while Peter, James, and John were taken over there to a closer here. And then Jesus went on alone a little beyond in verse 39. And I don't know, maybe it's no big deal, but I, I find it helpful. And, and since the verses seem to be pretty precise about the placement of different folks, um, there's, there's a reason to uh, record it in the Bible. and There's a reason to uh, acknowledge it and uh, to consider what... The uh, application may be then, if all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. How do we profit from knowing that eight disciples were left to sit here while Peter, James, and John were taken over there? And even the over there becomes a, a here once they get there. And then Jesus went alone a little beyond. Okay? hope that makes sense, right? There is always here once you get there. That's just the way it works. 
I mean, today is today, but yesterday, today was tomorrow. But now it's today. Why? Because we're here. All right. Um, so Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here. It finally happened. My apologies. I forgot to turn off my phone. All right. All right, Father, I apologize. All right. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. All right, so um, they're in the garden. Um, We don't have the noun in to. We do have to a place called Gethsemane. And so either at the entrance, at the gate, Elsewhere, we have the language of into and out of. Uh, This garden appeared to have an enclosure of some sort. Um, So eight of them are left here while I go over there and pray. So he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And so of the 11 remaining, eight of them were not entitled to see the grief and the distress. But these three are. These are the most intimate. These are the most closest. When we taught the 12 disciples, we taught how four of them were always the first four in every list. They're always the the, the closest third. And then the middle four are always the same four in every list. No matter, they could be scrambled within themselves, but they're, they're always the middle four. They always start with Philip, and there's always the middle four. And then there's the third set of four. And they're in different orders as well. But they always start with the same name. They always end with Judas Iscariot. They're always the, the final third of his 12 disciples in any event. Um, Peter, James, and John are the three that are the most intimate. They're the ones that were entitled to see the transfiguration. Uh, they're the ones that were taken up on the mountain to see that. They're the ones that are uh, entitled to see the grief of Jesus Christ in his Isaiah 53.10 crushing. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Now, this is the new here. This is the here that's here, but it was over there in verse 36. But now it's the new here. Okay. Peter, James, and John are to remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them. So we've got here, over there, which is the new here, and then a little beyond them. Got that? Eight of them, three of them. And then Jesus, the deepest in the garden, the deepest one in. All right. And then Judas is going to show up. And kind of interesting how he brings all these soldiers and the eight didn't stop him and the three didn't stop him, but Peter drew a sword. And then uh, Judas kisses Jesus and calls him friend. We'll talk about that as we get to the arrest episode, which is episode 25. All right. So eight disciples were left to sit here while Peter, James, and John were taken over there to a closer here and Jesus was left a little beyond. What's the big deal about that? Well, we'll talk about this next week, uh, in two weeks. No class next week. In two weeks, we'll talk about this. Only one-fourth of his disciples have the capacity to share his deepest prayers. Why are they not, why are the other eight not participating in this? In fact, not only are they not participating in this, they're not exposed to his distress. It's only the three that are exposed to his distress. And it's only those that are then invited to join in the prayers and then they fall asleep and they're not able to join in those prayers. 
In fact, we're told it's sorrow that keeps them from praying. It's sorrow that doesn't allow them to put into words the, the prayers that they would otherwise offer. We'll discuss what happens when sorrow leaves you speechless. Okay? Actually, we already did, right? We were in Romans 8 not too long ago. The Holy Spirit intercedes with the groanings too deep for understanding. So you're way ahead of me. Okay? But we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. And, you know, when we have our prayer meetings, who comes to those? Why doesn't everybody? Everybody's welcome. I mean, we obviously, we wouldn't throw anybody out that showed up that wanted to pray. But why is it that consistently, as a rule, the bulk of the, of the congregation doesn't come to congregational prayer? Sometimes I want to rename it from congregational to prayer. Prayer to part of the congregational prayer, right? Because it's only a remnant. It's only a small part. Well, my prayer is that more will join in that capacity, that more will come on board, that more will identify with the blessings of such a, uh, a fruitful ministry. And it's not like costing anything. We don't charge admission. No extra fee. And you get to lay up treasures for all eternity. You're never more Christ-like than when you're interceding for others. It's wonderful. All right. Well, um, Watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. I'm at the top of my hour, and maybe this person will call back. Watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. So we'll pick up on that next week and uh, define why it is. I think too many believers are sleeping and uh, instead of praying. And that's what we've got to deal with. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Father, um, <laughs> I, uh, I just thank you for ministering the word of God. We've got brothers and sisters here that, that are struggling, Father. And that's why I take classroom discipline so seriously. That's why I try to remind people to turn off their phones and remove distractions, Father, and avoid the unnecessary noise and movement and talking and anything that would distract. We've got brothers and sisters here today that are going through struggles. They're, they're, they're grieving to the point of death. They're... They're, uh, they need the Word of God. They need to feast. They need to, uh, to be embraced and folded in your arms. And they don't, need to be, they don't need to be distracted by unnecessary movement or goofing off or cell phones ringing. And, and so I apologize, Father. And I confess in my own, in my own uh, failure on this day. But Father, I do pray that as the Word of God goes forth, as the Holy Spirit plants it, let it be planted firmly. We receive the Word of God implanted with humility, Father, that is able to save our souls. I ask that the Word of God implanted today would spring forth and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. I pray that the, the impact of this doctrine would not be limited by the shortcomings of the human shepherd, the, the frail sinner that taught it, Father, but by the good shepherd who truly is the head of this church. Let the Word of God be powerful. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.